0: I've mentioned in past uh, sermons that the year of 2009 was a year of recovery for me. After a really tough season of ministry, I was uh, ordered by the Acts 29 Network to take a sabbatical before we began Prism Church in 2010. So I used 2009 to do two things that I had always talked about doing since I had a lot of spare time. It's a really wonderful thing to have time to rest and recover and get counseling and do all the things you need in a sabbatical. Uh, but I did two projects that I thought were really important. The first was I wrote a little book. It made the New York Times Lee Seller List. You've heard of it. It's Three Tips for Campus Survival. And, uh, and then I went and I, I actually started doing stand-up comedy here in Los Angeles. Now, I had, I had always talked about doing it, but obviously never had time. And we have one of the world-class centers of comedy here in Pasadena, the Ice House. And if you've never been there, you know, I can't officially recommend it as in my pastoral capacity, but I can just say it is this, it is the starting point for many a comedy career. Uh, really famous comics have gone through there on their way up, including Steve Martin, who would have called that home at the beginning of his career. And I took a comedy class, and then, of course, there's a picture here. The first time I was ever up on stage at the Ice House, it was, it's in their side room. And, and over the years, I had a, i, I over, I'm sorry, over the months, I had an opportunity to perform at a variety of different places. One was the, the belly room at the comedy store on Sunset. Uh, so I, I got to kind of scratch this itch. And, but I realized that my routine, while not very good, also was presenting for me a dilemma. And that was, I was in my routine telling everybody that I was this uh, out-of-work pastor. I was kind of working the comedic angle that I was a little frustrated and tired of the church as a whole. And yet I was going to start a church. And at the same time, my material was taking me, let's say, to the edge of appropriate conversation. Because all really good humor is real. Real. And it's very tough to be a comic and be like reserved about what you think and feel. And so I had this conflict going and it came to a head one night, you know, I realized, okay, this isn't gonna be able to continue much longer. And that was, I was, I was doing a, a bit in, at, a, at, a, at a place and I realized there just wasn't a lot of room for me uh, in this world. Uh, my material wasn't connecting with really anybody. Now the joke itself, I think has Quite a bit of substance to it as a comedic uh, aficionado, not any good at comedy, but somebody who likes to think he's funny. Um, I thought it had the great potential. Maybe the delivery lacked in some way, but effectively what I was saying was, yes, I'm a minister, and you may be angry that uh, uh, you would imagine that I was against same-sex marriage. And of course, the place goes dead silent, and I go, but really, it's it's a ministry of mercy for me to keep people from making the biggest mistake of their life. And it was about like that in the room. It's about the response I got. Now you gotta understand, the material itself is gold. I mean, again, you gotta, because what what I'm saying is I'm throwing everybody a curveball. And so, but what I discovered was, gay people didn't like me very much after that joke, and neither did the religious people because they're going, are you saying that marriage is not a covenant that is given by God for the flourishing of mankind? And of course, I found myself boxed into this place where I was just joking. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. And there just really wasn't a place for me. I realized I was this really weird oddity, which of course in LA sometimes means you fit right in. But I had no place And I realized I wasn't going to be able to plant the church as a pastor. My words were at times going to confuse people. You realize at a certain point that your behavior, what you say, communicates what you are feeling. Uh, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. And so I know my wife knew that I thought marriage was great. But in the comedic world, it's fun to make fun of marriage. So I found myself in a really difficult place. My words were being misunderstood. What I intended, if you knew me, you would have known I was joking. And if you were gay, you would have known that I, I wasn't intending to insult you in any way or offend you or be bigoted. I was making a joke. But they didn't know me. And so, of course, they responded with great deafness and silence. This is what was sort of going on in Paul's life when as he was dealing with the Corinthians. He was being accused of some things. He was being misrepresented by some people and he ve- effectively had to write to the Corinthians and say, you know me. You know that what I said, they've taken out of context. They've twisted it and turned it and flipped it upside down and made me look a certain way. But you know me. You know that deep down inside, I, my heart's in the right place. I, I led you to Jesus. What would make you think that I had an agenda other than your betterment? And this is the the place where the Apostle Paul finds himself in today's text of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are in a series this year. Our study is in the book of 2 Corinthians, and people are going to um, really, really know this book if you'll hang in there with us this this season, this whole year. Uh, In verses 15 through 19 of today's text, What you see is Paul explaining himself. And I'll give you a little historical background on what Paul was going through. On his second missionary journey, the apostle Paul established a church in Corinth. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. This is one of those things that's really fascinating. If you're new to the Bible, let me just encourage you uh, briefly that the Bible actually has a lot of information in it that explains a lot of the other information in it. So when we talk about 2 Corinthians, this is Paul's uh, second recorded letter to the Corinthians that we have, all right? But this is also a people he visited. If you go to Acts 18 through 20, you can see the actual real-life timeline encounters that Paul has with these Corinthians. So you get detailed information in his letters, but then you get the historical overview that's contained in the book of Acts. And this is the beautiful thing about our study is it's informed by other places in scripture explaining what and what Paul was going through, what the Corinthians were going through. Paul on his second missionary journey establishes this church and then tells them, hey, I'm gonna come visit you a couple other times. I'm gonna come back when I'm going through and then when I'm going again. So he makes his journey around and he writes them a letter because he gets word that when he gets around the bend of the sea, hears that things have gone really bad. So he writes a letter known now as 1 Corinthians. And this letter was, let's just say, sharp. All right? The people would not have thought, wow, what an encouraging note I got from the Apostle Paul today. And then when he heard that the, the response to the letter wasn't what you'd call overwhelmingly positive, he hopped on a boat, which sounds like a plane, but it really took a lot longer. And he went across the sea to visit the Corinthians for the second time. This visit is what is characterized in the scriptures as the painful visit. Some people in their lives have a sense that they remember certain seasons and times in their lives as a painful season. Carolyn and I jokingly refer to year number six in our marriage. That was the first year we had two kids under two. I had three jobs. We refer to that in our marriage lore as year number six, the painful year. That was a year where we found out just how messed up Chuck was. And so plenty of therapy and couples counseling later, we, we got back on track. But I'll tell you this. Paul's experience with the Corinthians on his second visit was ultra-painful. So then he took off on the road again, and they say that there's some theories that he wrote a second letter that we don't have, and that we actually have in 2 Corinthians as his third letter. We, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is, is that Paul was trying to avoid making them miserable by going there again. But when Paul didn't make his third visit as they had said they were promised, all right, they... Started to kind of throw a temper tantrum. And of course, his critics took his words and began to twist them. He said he was going to come back here three times. Been a while, it's only been two. And so now all of a sudden, people are turning the hose on Paul. It's like, hey, you said you were going to be here, and now we don't trust you. And if you've ever been in a situation where people twist your words, it's not fun. But I'll tell you, before we even get to the practical application of verses 20 through 24 in our verses today, there are a couple of things we can really apply to our personal lives based on what we see in the lives of the Corinthians and how they reacted to Paul's change of plans. All right, so the first thing I would say based on our verses 15 through 19 is that God is either sovereign or he's not. And our reaction to life's disappointments and disruptions and changes of schedule and changes of plan demonstrates how little we believe that or not. So I think life's going this way and life throws me a curveball, and all of a sudden I'm headed this way. My reaction to that disappointment tells me a lot about the comfort level I have in my heart that God substantially controls all things. And, and for us, peace is only found in knowing that to be true. And so our behavior, our reaction to disappointment equally as painful. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying, but the overarching perspective of panic or that feeling of anger that the world is not working out the way we were promised it should be should tell us something's wrong. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means when it's an overreaction, it tells us that something has gone from being a good thing to being an ultimate thing. The other thing we can see from the Corinthians is when we don't get our way, we often react angrily, and that would tell us where we're getting our life from instead of Jesus. When things get taken from me, I find out just how important those things were to me. Now, sometimes it's a legitimate pain. If you lose a loved one, that's painful. There's no way around that. But if you lose a job and you despair that there can be no future because you can't be that which you dreamed of being, that's when you have to start thinking, okay, I've spent way too much time thinking that I needed to be this in order to know genuine peace and joy in this life. This is the journey that I have been on for the last several years, coming face to face with I am defined not by what I do or what others think about me, but instead defined by my role as a child of God, which means that this season of my life, I am in the role of being a pastor of a small church. And another season, I might be a deck maker. But either way, I can know fullness in Christ regardless of what I do. Tim Keller says it this way, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, More than on God. Whenever we build our life on, whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us, and sin is primarily idolatry. Well, I have two thoughts for you today as Paul is interacting in this passage of Scripture. I have two overarching things that I think we can discern from this that will help us not only in our relationship with God, but help us in our relationships with each other. And this is what what Paul is effectively saying in defending himself to this group of believers he led to the Lord. And the first of these two thoughts is this We say what we say to show off the Savior. Right? What we say either glorifies Jesus or doesn't. It either puts him first and exalts him or it doesn't. It either puts him in a place of being seen in his character or or it doesn't. This is what the passage says in verses 20 and 21. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter the amen to God for his glory, for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The promises we make to each other, the promises Paul makes, and he's saying, Hey, this we had a change in plans. You know, don't lose your stuff over this, all right? I'm the kind of guy who said, if I introduced you to Jesus, I'm making promises in keeping with this whole paradigm that what I'm saying to you is true because what I've said to you about the gospel is true. The promises we make and keep at the most basic level give us a chance to show off the Savior who's guaranteed Salvation to those who believe. The passage here says he has anointed us and this is significant. This is the terminology used about Jesus when he spoke in uh, the synagogue in his hometown. He said the Holy Spirit that, that God had anointed him to preach the good news. At his baptism it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him and this is a symbol and a significant moment for us to know that he has in the same, in the same way we have been anointed with the Spirit if we are his children. Anointing is the moment when something has poured on you. In the Old Testament, it was oil. They would anoint a prophet, a priest with oil. It was a demonstration that this person was set apart. In the Scriptures, we're told that believers are anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is poured into their hearts. And in this very scripture, it says, he has put his spirit into our hearts as a guarantee. This is an echo of Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, another letter Paul wrote to another church, where he says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Carolyn and I really recently refinanced our home and boy, that is, a, that is a, an experience. You, you basically sign your life away without really knowing you're doing it. And they have a notary sit in front of you and shuffle papers in front of you that you just sign. They literally, we could be signing ourselves into slavery and not even be aware of it. I mean, that's how, that's how confusing this pile of documents is. Like, I would really take the time to read all the details. I'm just sort of trusting, you know, that these people aren't trying to work me over. But all along the way, they're stamping this thing with this thing, and they're stamping that and stamping this, and these notary signatures are to demonstrate that this thing has been sealed. This is, this is effective. This is legal. This is real. In the Old Testament, a king, or a queen for that matter, would have a signet ring And that would be something that was signifying of, well, their signature, their mark. And when they would transport messages or anything, they would have it sealed in wax. And then they would take that signet ring and they would would drill it into the wax and it would make the sign. And for a king, this meant this is a sealed message. And no one can open this but the one to whom it is addressed. And to do that would have meant your death. It was a, severe penalties for breaking that seal. So when a king sealed something, it was ultra-private. it was owned by the king. It was something that was his and personal. And so we're told that when you become a believer, at the moment when you genuinely encounter Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you, and he seals you with the Spirit. This is one of those places in Scripture where. It's, it is clear that if you understand the reality of the gospel, it should translate into changed behavior. And what I mean by that is it's unlike the religious experience of so many. The good news is that once a person genuinely becomes a Christian, the moment they hear the truth and believe and enter into fellowship with Jesus, they are possessed by the Holy Spirit and will never be abandoned. In other words, you can't become an unchristian. You can't lose your salvation despite what you might have been told as a child. You can't do something that will all of a sudden disqualify you. You were in relationship with Jesus, he's rescued you, you know him, he's forgiven you, but oops, you made a mistake too many times. Time to move you out of the family of God. It can't happen. You were sealed at the moment of your conversion. That seal can't be broken. You are saved at that moment, not after performing admirably for a while. The presence of God dwelling in us is for eternity and it begins the moment you genuinely enter into relationship with God through Christ's efforts on your behalf. The sacrifice of Jesus, if you want to stay with this imagery, has cleansed your inner temple. The blood has washed clean all of the sin of your inner temple and now the Holy Spirit has come and taken possession of a purified soul. Jesus has purified your soul, the Holy Spirit of God has taken possession. Our guarantees in this life, your words, Paul's guarantee to the Corinthians, the things he had told them to be true, they must definitively be guaranteed. We must be people of our word. You say, why? Well, it's not so that you can be determined to be rescued ultimately or go to heaven ultimately. Our good word testifies to the faithfulness of God. It glorifies, it shows off the character of Christ when people see the oddity of remarkable faithfulness to the promises you make. That may mean being where you said you'd be or being there when you said you'd be there. Two things that may be casual to you. Certainly, California culture encourages that. Blow in 30 minutes late and blame it on traffic. But there's something deep down inside that if you can be a faithful person, people will experience Christ through you. It's come in handy for Paul in this passage because he's saying, is it really my critics are saying this, you know, they're going to make much of this schedule change and you're going to let them twist your head into thinking that I haven't been like keeping faithful promises over the, t- over the years we've known each other? Really? See, it came in handy for Paul. He's saying, remember, I've always told you the truth, even when it was painful. I wrote you a painful letter. I wasn't trying to hide it then. See, he was always a person of integrity. And faithfulness to his promises was what marked his life. And that would give glory to Jesus. And that's really his end goal. People would experience Jesus through us and give thanks to God for our lives. One of the times I did comedy at the comedy store on Sunset, and it wasn't the big room where they actually pay you. It's quite the contrary. It's the back room where you actually get friends to come and pay to hear you perform. It's so, like, don't think more of myself than is merited by what I've really done. Um, and I could only do that a few times because, frankly, I don't have that many friends. And so you know, going to the belly room and having a bunch of my friends show up and pay top dollar to hear me do bad jokes along with 20 of my up-and-coming friends is really not interesting to most and, or a wise investment of their resources. So I met a woman, Carolyn and I did one of these nights, and she was a, she's really kooky, but she's like fun, and she was a really off-color comic, but she was sweet to us, which was rare in that context. And so she said, I'm starting a comedy night here on Sunset Strip at this place called Elderberries. Now, Elderberries is kind of a vegan coffee shop. And, 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 you know, being from the South, I wasn't even clear what being a vegan was. And so uh, the night they said, we're going we're gonna to have our first night. And I, she said, I'd like you to come. Would you come and perform? And I said, I'd be glad to. Well, I got there and there was no stage. It was just like a microphone in a corner of this really dingy sort of coffee bar. And worse yet, as I got my beverage and I introduced myself to everybody, I realized that it probably wasn't appropriate dress for me to wear my leather jacket. And so, (laughs) learning as I go, um, I did my material, which went about as well as it always had. Not well. And so, afterwards, though, I was sitting around eating what is can only be described as the nastiest coffee I've ever had in my life. And the people who run that place are really sweet. But, you know what I mean? I'm not an organic guy. I love my chemicals. And so, you know, I was just an adjustment, really. And, and, but I was like, oh, this is great. And so uh, I was sitting with them, and they said, oh, it would, really, it would really be nice for us to have a stage in here. And I said, well, I, I, I can build one of those for you. And they went, you can? They went, Sure. And they went, oh, okay, sure, great. And that's, they left it at that. So I went home that week, and I went to the Home Depot and picked up a bunch of plywood and stuff, and I, and I built this, you know, it's really a four-by-eight little riser for the corner of their building. It fit perfectly into this little nook that they were using. And I bought a little piece of carpet to staple on top of it. And then the next Friday, I strapped it to the roof of our SUV and illegally drove it down the 210 and wound through the Hollywood Hills to get to Elderberries, and I rolled up in front of this place with this stage on the roof of my truck and the owner of Elderberries and the lady who headed up the comedy night looked at me and they go, who does this? And I go, what do you mean? Put the thing on the roof? I know, it's sort of crazy. And they're like, no. Who actually says they're gonna build a stage and, and then does it? And see, I got to tell you, I wasn't looking to make points. I just thought there's very little I can do. It's a sabbatical year. I've got time on my hands. Why not build them a little stage? But for them, it was relatively unique experience for them to have somebody say they do something and then actually do it. So they promised me as bad as my material was, they would let me continue performing there for life. (laughs) They were very kind to me, but I would encourage you, That what you say and how you come through in your life does make a difference. People will notice, particularly in a culture that is ultra selfish. We say what we say to show off the Savior. My second point and final one for today is we give what we give for others' good. Paul says this in verses 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. I love the message. It is an ultra-modern translation of the Bible, and you sometimes have to like match it up against like, a really reliable like, translation of the Bible just to make sure you get it right. But in this particular passage, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament is like Gold. And so I wanted to read this same verses, the same section of passage from an ultra-modernized version of the Bible because I think it's an accurate translation. Now, you are, ready for the, are you ready for the real reason I didn't visit you in Corinth? As God is my witness, the only reason I didn't come to you was to spare you pain. I was being considerate of you, not indifferent, not manipulative. We're not in charge of how you live out your faith. Looking over your shoulders, conspicuous, uh, suspiciously critical. We're partners, working alongside you, joyfully expectant. I know that you stand by your own faith, not by ours. See, Paul's motivation in disappointing them by not coming in was ironically not to disappoint them. I, I want to say that again because I don't think it's just good word smithing, I think it's absolutely the core of what he's saying in this passage. His motivation for disappointing them was ironically not to disappoint them. He knew that he was going to cause them pain. He didn't want to create more pain in their life by bringing the hard truth, so he opted to have them experience instead the pain of his absence. Any parent of a teenager knows this experience, knows that at times the best thing for a child is to be told no or to be told that you are going to experience the consequences of your bad action or the pain associated with discipline. It is loving to tell people no. Sometimes, If what they want is bad for them, it most certainly is. Now, I got to tell you, wealthy people, beautiful people, if you're either of those two things, you're not accustomed to being told no, and so you're going to miss out on some good things in life, because sometimes most of us would say, we've looked back on our life and been told no or been redirected by God through some painful travails, and we thought, I'm really glad that happened. If you're a wealthy, powerfully influential person or you're really good looking, you've gotten away with murder for most of your life because people were just afraid to tell you no. But once you get told no, you realize, I've got to deal with something that's really painful in my heart. I've got to be told no. And the absence of allowing, to other, uh, allowing others to deal with difficulty is really an, a selfish, unloving act. For a parent to say to a child, okay, I will keep covering your mistakes or your obnoxious behavior. Or you got this really good looking guy or girl you're dating and, and they just are accustomed because they're pretty or they're really attractive to being told, okay, whatever you want's great. Well, they're not accustomed, but the best thing in the world you could do is tell them no. A rich person often has to be corrected. And I had an experience like this in my last church. He was the wealthiest guy in our church and he was upset with something we were doing, a we, decision we'd made as a team. And he came to me, and this was in Florida, and he said, hey, we might leave the church, and we're significant givers. And I, and I told him, I said, listen, I'm sorry if this upsets you. But what you just said, I have to help you understand what you're doing. As a pastor, the last thing in the world you want me to do is to ever shade the truth. My value to you is that I would direct you to Scripture even if it was, even if it was painful. The value of a minister is like the value of an attorney. You know, if if you have an attorney who's not really giving you counsel that's in your best interest, but they just want to be able to keep the billable hours rolling. Or maybe you have a doctor like Michael Jackson's doctor who will give you anything you want anytime you want it. You think that's good for you? No. So wealthy people have to be really careful not to shield and insulate themselves from people who are trying to do them good by often telling them something they don't want to hear. All this to say, Paul was doing something for them when they perceived, he was doing something for them that they perceived or his enemies were twisting to make it look like it was selfish. Paul's motivation for not coming to them was to avoid making another painful visit. The first one wasn't so great. The second one, I mean, (laughs) the revisit. The revisit. So he didn't really want the third one to be awful. They should have been thanking him. Instead, they started criticizing him. And the point for us is what we're to do in life is supposed to be motivated by what's best for others. And this is the deep, dark look into our souls that we have to make when we're faced with hard choices. Am I doing this for myself or for others? Jesus had to make these choices. I'm going to suffer and die for their benefit. I'm going to allow myself to be persecuted and slandered, and I'm going to remain silent for their benefit. Jesus is said to have been our servant. And, and I see in verse 24 uh, an echo of something he said. Verse 24 of the passage says, We don't lord it over your faith. Now, the, the language is, is ultra similar to Mark 10 42 through 45. This is what Jesus said. See, this is where we keep constantly, week after week, come back to the gospel of grace. That is to say, unless you have been, unless you have really experienced a serving from Jesus, unless your experience with Jesus has been that he has forgiven you, that he's extended to you more kindness than you can even comprehend, unless you can really grasp this, it'll be unlikely that you give this and we'll be able to give this to somebody else. I would say it's a lot like your bank account. You can't distribute money that you don't have. I mean, you could say, I I really think it's important to give to the poor, but if you've got no money to give to the poor, what are you gonna do? And, And love, forgiveness, all those things, we receive a deposit from Jesus, and to the degree we receive that, we are able and capable to graciously and generously distribute that to others. The last time I did comedy, my wife came to see me perform, and I won't say it was my finest hour, but little did she know that part of my material was kind of a frank discussion of uh, our life and marriage in general, and I'll just say that there were parts of that stuff really funny, mind you, I mean, like top-notch comedy in, in my judgment, but things that made her really uncomfortable and made her not so happy and so after I got off stage I followed her to the car and it was one of those moments where you knew this isn't going to go well <laughs> this is one of those discussions that is not going to end with praise and worship of the husband and so we, I said you okay and she goes no I'm really not okay I, I really don't want you to do that anymore And so I had a choice to make. I had a choice that I was either gonna rewrite my entire act, which would've taken more time and energy than I had because I was about to start a church, or I had to just quit doing it so that my wife would be encouraged, so she would feel loved, so she would feel honored. And so I had my choice was am I going to get a thrill from having people laugh at my expense and really ultimately her expense, or was I going to do what was loving to my wife? So I told Carolyn to suck it up and I kept after the comedy. Um, No, no, I quit. And and probably just as well, I I really stunk at it anyway and I had other work to do. And so, you know, it all worked out well. But I think this is it for us in life together, which is to say, we can measure how selfless we are. Do you want to gauge how am I doing in my Christian faith? Your words, your actions, are they other-centered? I mean, honestly, and I don't, it's not like I have this down. I'm saying these things are indicators to us. These should point us to not, okay, change your behavior, but as we said last week, what's filling your soul? Are, is there anything in the account in your soul that says, I'm loved, I'm valued, I'm forgiven, so that you're going to be able to access that? And you can tell whether or not your soul is full of those things based on what comes out of your mouth. If it's vitriol, if it's hatred, if it's jealousy, if it's anger, Those things are indicators that your soul is crying out for something deeper, something rich. And Jesus is offering it. He's saying, come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And Paul is saying to them, we work with you for your joy, for we know you stand firm in your faith. So let's pray to God that you and I would know the real joy of his faithfulness so we could extend it to each other. Father, we are a broken people in desperate need, first and foremost, to see and comprehend in greater dimensions how faithful you've been to us. It is true, Lord, that you have been better to us than we deserve, and that you've been better to us than we have acknowledged. We're not even... Comprehending all of the places where you have been gracious and kind. We're selfish. So we pray that you would help us in a, in a first act to see you, and that as we see how tender and kind and gracious a holy God has been to a, an unholy people, that you'd fill our souls to overflowing with grace and forgiveness and patience for others. And ultimately, when we make promises to people, we would sense a need to keep them so that others would see your faithfulness in us and they would give you praise. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.